0: Hello, and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. Forgive me, forgive me, there's only one place to start, and that's the Prime Minister's speech at the CBI. Boris Johnson's oration, which included a tour of Peppa Pig World and the painful pause when he lost his place, has been seized on by the Labour Party, lampooned by Anton Deck, and it's caused concern in government ranks. So is the Prime Minister okay, as one interviewer asked? Is number 10 okay? Or was this just the Prime Minister being himself? We're going to take a look at that. More seriously, perhaps, for his premiership, Boris Johnson is having a rough time in the House of Commons. The government won a vote on its plans to reform social care, but a large number of Tory MPs rebelled or abstained. That followed a week after the government unveiled what has been seen as a watering down of its plans for rail in the North and other commitments there. Are these broken promises or just different versions of what was promised? more of that to come as well. And then we're going to end by looking ahead to next week and the latest instalment in the row over standards in public life. That one has not gone away yet either. Joining me today to discuss it all are the IFG's Alex Thomas, Programme Director for our Civil Service Work. Hi, Alex. Hello, Bronwyn. Great to have you here. Hannah White, our Deputy Director, is back again. Hi, Hannah. Hi, Bronwyn. And I'm delighted as well to be joined by Robert Shrimsley, Chief Political Commentator at the Financial Times. Hi, Robert. How's things? Very good, thanks. Great. Thanks for joining us. Well, let's start with that speech of the prime minister's. Is he OK? That question asked by one intrepid journalist and repeated by Labour leader Keir Starmer followed a speech by Boris Johnson, which was high on frivolity and low on focus. But was this just a familiar outing of Johnsonian rhetoric with his marvellous description of Pepper Pig as a hairdryer-shaped pig? Or was it, as some reports suggest, a sign that Number 10 itself is losing focus? Robert, you wrote a terrific column for the FT this week. Which argued that this is nothing to do with advisors and all about a lack of strategy.
1: Yeah. I mean I think you know it's always risky getting overdone about, you know, what is it? One bad day at the office, one bad speech. Um, you know, if one could invert the old Barocca advert, it was just him but on a very bad day. But the problem is context is is relevant in all these things. And well, it was it just a bad speech when everything was going well for him? No one would pay much attention to it at all. But it seemed somehow to capture, as a metaphor, the, the notion of a prime minister who's losing his way a little bit. And there've been a series of errors, most of them unforced, which has led the parliamentary party and those who are meant to be his allies to think, "Well, hang on, what, what's going on here? Why are we not? Why are we making these schoolboy errors and quite a lot of them? Why are we getting ourselves into trouble that we don't need to get into?" And that's led to the inevitable calls for, you know. He needs better advisers. You know, he needs grey hairs in Downing Street. He needs to get a grip, and all these things. But I'm afraid the problem, and I think quite a few people have pointed out the same point, is that this is the prime minister. This is who he is, and he's not going to fundamentally change. And perhaps you can bring in a couple of people who can, you know, make give, give good advice that he actually listens to. But the truth is, he thrives on this chaotic approach. It's how he's always functioned, and also, frankly, I mean. What quality of advisor do you, do you rely on, or, or do you need, if, if you need them to tell you not to allow up a speech? And the truth is, I, I don't believe there were people around him who weren't pointing out the risks of r- rushing to the defence of Owen Patterson in the Sleaze scandal, but he chose to do it anyway because he believes, because his general MO is to believe that he can get away with things and that if they go wrong, he can sort it out afterwards. And that's always, and the truth is, that's always worked for him up till now. And until there starts to be really definitive proof that he can't keep getting away with things like would imagine he'll carry on with the same M.O.
0: And do you think at the moment he has got away with it? I mean, the Pepper Pig stuff and the losing his place in the speech, which was more painful in a way, didn't completely dominate the news in the way that it, 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 some people might, might think it
1: would have done. No, it didn't dominate the news because I think people can see that it's just a, a bad speech. But the question is whether it... I've always thought the greatest danger to Boris Johnson is not directly going to come from the electorate. It's going to come from his own parliamentary party, concluding that he is no longer an asset to them. And obviously, part of that will be a reflection of what the opinion polls are telling them in any by-elections and local elections. But fundamentally, it will come when the parliamentary party conclude that he is a liability rather than an asset. The danger of events like this, like the standards scandal, all these things which don't necessarily resonate enormously with the public, is that they resonate enormously with his MPs. And so the danger is they start looking at him. And, they, and a, a bit like, you know, the, the, the Wizard of Oz, they suddenly look at him and he's not this giant face bestriding the world and speaking with a booming voice. He's a chap behind the curtain and the magic act doesn't look quite as impressive anymore.
0: That's really interesting. We'll come on to the parliamentary problems that he's having at um, the moment. But I just want to pick up your point about the lack of strategy. Do you think that levelling up can fill that, that gap?
1: Well, I think it's the best bet. I mean, I did, I, I did write about this week, but I suggested it was the best thing to have. Because what's been going on, if you look at Boris Johnson's premiership, there's always been a major unifying project for the party, um, which has given the momentum, allowed him to look like a leader. And although there have been rebellions, allowed him to carry his party with him. So first there was Brexit, <laughs> a clear, largely unifying project for the Conservative Party, driving it through. The MPs were behind him. And as long as he was appeared to be moving in the right direction, they were with him. They put up with the you know, with the downsides of his leadership style. And then we get to COVID, and again, an absolute clarifying mission for the government and the country. And although again there are rebellions, and there are missteps. People get behind him, and he shows that he's able to convey leadership and, and persuade them to stick with him. The problem is, what is the overriding project now? What is the conservative government? for now. Um, once upon a time, it would have been for tax cuts and prudential management of the economy. Well, that's not where they've been going in the last, um, in the last 12 months. So the best they have is to persuade, the best he has is to persuade his party and the country that levelling up is a real thing rather than a slogan or instinct, that there is a real strategy and a real plan, They're one that's going to take more than one parliament to deliver. Mm-hmm. And that means that when this long, long-awaited levelling up white paper comes in the next few weeks, I think it has to show that there is a real belief and a real commitment to this. And it's not just banging money to doll up high streets or improving bus routes. Good, those, those things all are. It's got to look like there is a plan for really reviving the regions of the country outside the South. And I think if he can do that and, and can give conservatives something to believe in again with conviction, then again, they'll be more tolerant of the missteps that come with the Boris Johnson regime.
0: Thank you for that. Alex, you used to work in the Cabinet Office. What do you make of this talk of the need for a different structure at Number 10 for more advisers?
2: Yes, it's uh, it's all down to the evil advisers of the king, isn't it? It's um This is a familiar mm. trope. And I, I tend to agree with Robert on the fact that it comes down to Johnson himself. I think it's also, it's it's worth remembering, uh, and uh, I certainly recall it, that all Number 10s and, and their operations have different factions. There are regular briefings uh, against people and have been sort of throughout history. And certainly if you think back to Theresa May era, uh, and uh, perhaps to a lesser extent, but but it still happened with uh, David Cameron and Steve Hilton. There's always some instability there because uh, Number 10 operates like a court. I would say I think the Johnson court is particularly anarchic. Uh, and that does seem to be how he likes it and, and who he is. There's that sort of memorable quote, I think it was from Dominic Cummings that Johnson revels in being the only person who can provide order and so actually quite quite relishes this. I do think though that the the number 10 operation can make a difference so it does matter. Um, A lot of this stuff is sort of gossipy and tittle-tattle but it it does matter in the end partly because all of this briefing destabilises those inside number 10. So the effect is probably less on the electorate um, and it's more partly as Robert was saying on MPs but it's also on those inside number 10 who will start to feel insecure, uh, the collegiality, uh, undermined. Who's briefing against uh, against who? So I think that's um that's one to watch. The, the other thing I, I think to watch is. There was some you know, reflection when um, Dominic Cummings left and the new, uh, not so new now, Chief of Staff Dan Rosenfield came in. The question o- over how political he was, and he doesn't come from a political background, I think there will come a moment. I can't quite believe I'm talking about the next election already, but there'll come a moment as we head towards the next election, where Number 10 uh, needs to become sort of extremely focused on that. And so do they you know, send for the Linton Crosbys or, um, uh, or the Isaac, Isaac Levitos? So I think that'll be a, a moment to watch and pro- potentially more significant than some of the uh, the chatter around at the moment.
0: And of course, coronavirus has made it seem in a way as if we're, the last election has only just passed. But in fact, time is racing on and the next one is going to be with us fairly soon. Hannah, do you think he's missing Dominic Cummings?
3: I think I agree with Robert and Alex. You know, it's convenient in these circumstances to blame the advisors for people who don't want to to blame Boris Johnson for his own behaviour. Dominic Cummings was clearly someone who wasn't afraid to say no to the Prime Minister. But as Robert said, I can't imagine there aren't people who are in Number 10 suggesting that he not take certain courses of action at the moment, who he's choosing to ignore and having these various different factions to play off against each other is quite convenient for him because he can take the advice he wants to hear at the time and maybe he's not making the best decisions. Alex,
0: the speech, um, the bits that surfaced from it, did take aim at civil servants. Was that fair?
2: I think uh, civil servants would take with a pinch of salt, and I think everybody took with a pinch of salt the um, uh, the criticism that uh, no civil servant could come up with pepper Pig. That was um, uh, neither fair, but nor particularly serious. So uh, uh, you know, it was a, it was it was a bit of rhetoric. I, I wouldn't uh, linger on that too long. I suspect of more long term significance was this week. We also saw an intervention from Kate Bingham, who used to chair the vaccines task force suggesting that the government as a whole and the civil service in particular needed more scientific skills and was uh, too slow and bureaucratic risk averse needed to adopt a more venture capitalist mindset so I think that's the that's the critique that will land more forcefully with um, with civil servants I think rather than rather than worrying that they need to get creative and start inventing uh, cartoon characters.
0: And that was a very passionate speech by Kate Bingham. It was quite choked up at one point when she was referring to her father, uh, the late Tom Bingham, distinguished uh, judge and, and author. Hannah, what do you make of the criticisms
3: that she made? it doesn't entirely surprise me with the coronavirus inquiry coming fast upon us next year we assume and at least we haven't heard anything recently but that's what we've been told that different people are getting their their different versions of events uh, in on the record sooner rather than later there are many aspects to her critique which we at the institute would uh support and are themes that we've um looked at over time at the same time i think you know is a little bit uh, a little bit unfair because it's it's difficult for civil servants to to respond to some of the the criticism that have made. They can't do that on the public record in the same way that she can, being a sort of private individual now. And Robert, your thoughts on that speech?
1: You know, I, I think that there's there's you know, there's some reasonable criticisms about the way uh, the civil service and the, the whole governmental machine could be more nimble and more effective. And there were some good moments during the the covid crisis which showed how things can work well when they work well but it's also worth pointing out there were plenty of bad moments um, during the covid crisis plenty of bad procurement decisions or other task forces or outsiders brought in to shake things up who didn't totally nail it and i think the danger with all these things and especially if one buys into the increasingly paranoid tendency to talk about the blob as some great um concept which this sits there rather like. that sits there to frustrate all government initiatives, you miss the nuance and something of what's going on. But of course the civil service could be improved. Of course there could be more scientific bias to it. There could be more rigour, more, more use of data science, which I think the leaders of the civil service um, understand. But there are also parts of it that work fairly well. And I think the truth is there's no great value In trying to lump everything together in one great block and say they just need to be like this, because the truth is the same crisis that gave us caping and gave us Dido Harding, uh, the same crisis that gave us the vaccine task force, gave us all kinds of um, terrible procurement decisions. And there is a good reason for process as well as a bad reason. But, uh, of course, the Civil Service should always be looking for, for ways to be more effective and more nimble.
2: I'd, I'd agree with that. And I think one of the other interesting points that, that did come out of the Bingham speech was how the civil service and the government as a whole can bottle some of the uh, energy and speed and dynamism of a crisis and then apply that to, quote unquote, normal operation. And I think Kate Bingham, obviously, an immense task and uh, uh, overall vaccine task force did very well. But when you've got an unlimited budget, when you've got political momentum behind you, when you can crack heads together, in that way, and everyone is sort of united around a clear task, that is uh, an easier thing to do than some of the uh, sort of complexities, balancing political arguments that is all part of the normal operation of, of government. So I think there's bottling the good elements of the crisis, but, but not um, uh, not being naive about how, how government in, in the end operates in, uh, in more normal times
0: that point you made about how to preserve the best of the crisis of the the techniques of the crisis is of course something we're looking at in fact your team Alex uh looking lots at how to preserve that I think absolutely right not to refer to the whole of the civil service as the blob though that that phrase creation of Dominic Cummings and Michael Gove is one of their, their most enduring contributions to government so far Let's use that as a reason to turn and talk about the Prime Minister's problems in Parliament, not of peas in this particular podcast. In the words of one former Conservative minister, this is the danger of selling perpetual sunlight and then leaving it to others to explain the arrival of moonlight. Now, that was Hugh Merriman talking last week about HS2. But for some Conservative MPs, it could equally apply to this week's row about the government's social care plans. Because what was promised in the 2019 Conservative Manifesto is not exactly the same as those MPs are now being asked to vote through. It's not even the same as we thought it was going to be a couple of months ago. And not all of them are willing to vote with the government anymore. So let's start with social care. We're joined now by IFG senior researcher Graham Atkins to explain what
4: the plan is and how it's changed. So this all started last Wednesday, last week, when the government published a fairly technical sounding amendment to its social care reforms. When it was originally announced in September, the government's social reforms consisted of two main things, a cap on costs that no one would have to contribute more than £86,000 towards their own care, and a more generous means test. So local authorities would start paying some of people's care costs uh, at an earlier stage than they do now. And what the government guidance did was to spell out some details and specify that only people's personal contributions towards their own care will be counted towards the cap. That wasn't in the 2014 Care Act, so it needed an amendment to a slightly separate piece of health legislation going through the Commons at the same time. In essence, at the basic level, this makes the system less generous than how generous we thought it was going to be in September. And more specifically, it means that people with relatively modest assets... so Somewhere between 106,000 and 186,000. So, maybe kind of a uh, in particular, perhaps someone who owns their own home in a red wall seat where house prices aren't especially high, are going to have to spend more of their assets on care than they would have under the older system. So, this is going to save some money. It probably is going to save somewhere in the realm of about £900 million a year, but it's been made solely off the back of getting people with modest assets to pay more towards their own care. And it's really just a really politically damaging thing because this came as a surprise. And I think really it's it's just very concerning that the government has tried to push through this big reform while kind of discarding all the basics of good policymaking.
0: And it comes ahead of the Social Care White Paper, doesn't it? Which has been long, long promised and is due to come out soon. But one of the points that MPs were really angry about was that they were being asked to approve this change before debating this this white paper which is designed to test and explore these these very complicated implications in more detail.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's you know it, there's the white paper which is supposed to set out the government's vision for improving care. But the, the really damaging thing is that there's no impact assessment. There is no way of telling how much the government thinks this reform will cost, who it will benefit. And you know, because there is none of that detail, no way to assess whether the money that they have claim that they're going to give towards social care as part of the health and social care level is enough. And government ministers
0: do say that they're not taking money out of social care, that they're um, they're going to put this money that's saved by this change back into a kind of social care, some form of it, aren't, aren't they?
4: So, so specifically kind of the, the claim here is that they are being less generous on the cap in order that they can be more generous on daily living costs and on the means test, which. Can, may or may not be true because of, kind of the nature of government spending. It's fungible and it's very hard to say specifically whether the money they save there they're definitely going to put over there. But again, to keep coming back to this, if there were an impact assessment of these different options that clearly set out how much each thing would save, how much each option would cost, would be much. You know, government would have a much better base from which to make these kinds of claims, because currently it's simply not very transparent.
0: Great. Thank you very much indeed for that. Robert, are Conservative MPs right to be concerned about this change in the social care
1: plans? It's problematic in terms of the way you sell it to some voters. I mean, the truth is the social care the social care crisis meant different things to different people. To so a lot of people, when we talk about the crisis in social care, we talk about the problems of recruiting staff, um, the lack of funding in the sector, and so, you know, the fact that so many private social care homes are operating on the brink of bankruptcy. When you talk to Conservative MPs, the social care crisis meant the fact that people were having to sell their homes to fund the cost of care, and so there were different problems. And the truth is that that was the one they were more concerned about resolving when they raised national insurance to get funding to social care. Now, the problem with what they've done is they've made it clear that the people who are going to benefit the most from this are those with the biggest houses, most expensive houses, and therefore probably disproportionately in the South. And that is an issue for a certain sector of Conservative MPs. And I do think it will come back to haunt My My own instinct is they'll probably be pushed back on this quite a bit. They'll be Amendments in the House of Laws and the government may have to give a bit of ground. But it is an example of one of the areas where the Treasury is exerting a substantial control over what the government is able to do and, what promise, and over Boris Johnson's promises. I know we're going to come on to, HS, to HS2 in a bit, but the same is there. It, it is areas where Boris Johnson wants to go one way and the Treasury is forcing him back. So at the moment it's a problem for Boris Johnson and it's a problem for the government, although you know, they did survive the rebellion reasonably hmm. well. But I think this the interesting thing to watch in this and in other areas is the extent to which this becomes an argument between MPs and the Treasury as much as it does between MPs and Boris Johnson.
0: That's interesting. But, of course, when you say Boris Johnson wants to go one way, he has, in a sense, already gone that way. He's promised these things, and then the Treasury is hauling him back to something um, a bit tighter on, on the spending front. Hannah, what about this point about the Lords? Do you think that the Lords are going to extract a lot
3: of concessions from the government on this? I think they'll certainly do their best to do so, when The government's majority was cut to 26 on, on the, the crucial vote on this, and that was 19 Conservative MPs voting against what they've been told to do, and 28 for various reasons, not all uh, actual opposition to the plan, abstaining. And I think the Lords will take a bit of strength from that and, and feel that they are empowered to say to the house of commons in various areas we know we want you to think again and to reflect which is obviously the ha- role of the house of lords and i think that one of the the key reasons they will want to do that is because one of the reasons some mps said that they had opposed the plans was that they felt they'd been bounced by the government they hadn't had enough time to consider this change and this is i think symptomatic of a wider weakness in, in sort of parliamentary handling that the the Prime Minister and and his government have been exhibiting a sort of sense that if you just don't give MPs very long to think about things, they'll go along with your plan. And I think backbenchers and particularly the new ones are starting to get a bit wise to that. Aren't very comfortable with it. And so I think it absolutely will seem to the House of Lords that uh, on these things, if they if they say to the House of Commons maybe you'd like to think again about this, they'll be a bit longer for MPs to have considered the issues. And and so the Whips won't be entirely sanguine, I think, about what happens to amendments coming back from the Lords. Is the old adage true that once MPs get a taste for rebellion, they're going to do it again? I think it absolutely is. There's research evidence which says that, that the first time is definitely the hardest and then it gets easier. Uh, So uh, another reason that the Whips... Uh, need to sort of really reflect I think on their parliamentary handling because the, the the more MPs get a taste for rebellion the more it's likely to happen.
1: The other point Bronwyn is that um, once you see a Prime Minister who can be pushed around and who retreats in the face of adversity you know, the number of times you're prepared to march up the hill for him um, d- diminishes and we saw this with, with the standards thing all these Tory MPs who did what they were told and then within you know, a couple of days have found themselves having backed the wrong horse. So the truth is, every time Boris Johnson acts tough and then backs down, that's another reason for people who are waverers on any particular policy to think, well, hell with it, I'm going to go against it.
2: There's also a policy risk, I think, which is that social care has been such a difficult question for successive governments and has been around for so long now. Uh, it was already thought of as the kind of third rail of uh, British politics. And this will not dissuade anyone that tackling social care is uh, anything other than kind of extremely difficult and politically perilous. Because of course, one of the biggest questions looking forward a couple of years is that the money that's going to be raised from the national insurance rise is mostly going to go into the health service and not into social care. And the question of exactly how that's resolved in a few years time is still uh, somewhat um, open on the assumption that the NHS will swallow up lots of the, uh, lots of the cash. So if this dissuades governments from being uh, brave on social care in the future I think that's a problem too.
0: Robert on, just on that point do you think this is the normal risk of dealing with very controversial issues like social care and hs 2 or is it a sign of the government mismanaging taking for granted its 80 seat majority?
1: I think it's all those things you know we are returning post-COVID we're returning a little bit to politics as normal we do have a fairly you know well-defined rump of conservative ventures who are ready to rebel I mean you, you can probably calculate 20 Likely rebels on any contentious issue on the back benches now, former ministers, people who are content regularly aggrieved. So the question is, can can you find on the issue the the extra twenty or twenty five that will turn this eternal rebellion in, in into a defeat? But I do think there's been some bad parliamentary management, and as I said, I think the fact that the prime minister looks like he can be pushed around does encourage MPs to. Stand firm more often. I mean, in fact, they've not had too many reverses. It doesn't have to be that way, but they just have to look like they're like their political judgments are sane, that they're not going to lead their MPs into terrible trouble, and that they can be counted on to stand to stand their ground. And I think these are all things that have been missing at the moment.
0: So let's pick up this point about HS2 and the new Northern Rail plans, Graham. Perhaps you can just set out for us what has changed in what the government is
4: offering on its rail plans. On Thursday last week, ahead of quite a lot of media briefing, the government decided to scrap uh, Northern Powerhouse Rail. That would have been a high-speed rail line between Leeds and Manchester and the eastern leg of HS2, the bit that runs from the East Midlands Parkway up to Leeds. Um, so it's said it's going to replace that with a fairly piecemeal set of rail improvements, like a small amount of new line, but a large amount of electrification of the old line and some local transport projects, which it hopes will kind of be Kind of up and running faster than HS2. But politically, the really difficult thing here is that it breaks a manifesto promise to deliver Northern Powerhouse Rail in full. And kind of, I think, even with these replacement schemes, it'd be pretty difficult to say that the government has you know, delivered Northern Powerhouse Rail in full.
0: The government's argument is that it's delivering um, more speed and much sooner than some of these other more expensive plans would be? How
4: much weight should we give to that? You can get, definitely give some weight to the government ar- government ar- government's argument that it's going to save money, at least on kind of the current cost est- estimates of its new plan. It's, it's quite a lot less than Northern Powerhouse Rail and extending HST would have been. I think the argument that it's going to deliver benefits faster is a bit more contentious. So it's worth saying a lot of these kind of replacement schemes are are rail electrification schemes, and and they're normally quite expensive, and they often take longer than planned. And interestingly, part of the plan is electrifying the Midland Main Line, which was originally cancelled in 2017. Now, the reason that project was cancelled was that the cost of electrification on another line had shot up, it was taking longer than expected, much more expensive. In essence here, what the government has kind of said is that, you know, in some ways HS2 has gone a bit off the rails, costs are increasing, it's taking longer to deliver. So we're going to replace it with the scheme where the last time we attempted it, it was cancelled because we thought costs were going up too quickly and it was taking longer than expected. So I would be quite concerned that some of these schemes may not end up being that much quicker. So the thing the government really needs to do is to act now to make sure it's got the supply chain and the kind of engineers and others in place before construction starts. Otherwise, when it gets to the second half of this decade, they're going to be kind of competing and bidding up the costs of labour while they're trying to do multiple electrification projects at the same time. Thanks very much for that.
0: Alex, does the government have a point that what it's offering is better rail, arriving sooner, albeit not the full HS2 and upgrading of, um, of the northern rail plans in exactly the way that
2: was promised before? So I, th- I think it does have a point on that, but it's lost the expectation management game because of the, uh, you know, the sunshine as you referred to that, that Boris Johnson has been selling, and he's been uh, so associated with um, HS two uh, in in the past. So there's a, there's a credibility point there. The other political point is that uh, actually HS two in these areas would have caused quite a lot of disruption in the so-called red wall areas. There were other services that might have been removed as part of the HS2 plans. So on an individual constituency level, I think there'll be quite a lot of Conservative and some Labour MPs who are relieved at this because uh, it means that they won't have to face criticism from the uh, disruption from uh, HS2. So it's it swings and roundabouts. And I think, I suspect the government is willing to uh, ride this one out because they can see those um, specific political um, benefits but it is a you know it's, it's a loss to the capacity of the system I mean I think again another mistake that previous governments made was selling HS2 on on speed rather than on um, capacity this will reduce that um, that capacity in in parts of uh, the north of England.
0: So Robert why have they done this I mean this, this seems a real blow to those red wall MPs.
1: Money it's, it's really as simple as that they've, they've looked at the cost and they've decided they can't afford it. and obviously again um, the Treasury has put in capital spending, a 3% cap on investment. So, so you know, boring investors. So I think, you again, they're having to make choices because of COVID. A lot of, you know, Boris Johnson was elected almost as a good time premier. There was Brexit, but after that, it was going to be spending and investment. COVID has wrecked the public finances. And the Treasury is especially concerned about this. And they are pressing him much harder on... <laughs> All manner of issues. There was plenty of people, you know, in Downing Street, I mean, his, his transfer advisor, Andrew Gilligan, was long hostile to um, HS2. You have the red wall point um, that was being made. Although I have to say one, one thing that people aren't factoring in is that if you don't, if you're not building a new line, then you have to tolerate disturbance on the existing line. So people will find this, um, you know, unagreeable whichever way um, it went. But the truth is it's money. Uh, I think in the end that these lines will go ahead one day or another. They will, they, the, the government will return them. possibly at the next election, if the Labour Party um, commits to these lines, the, the Conservatives may find they have to revisit them. But it's money, simple as that.
0: Yeah. And Hannah, what other parliamentary pinch points are, are
3: coming up for the Prime Minister? I think, as Robert says, the things which are going to start to bite to the things which flow from shortages of, of money, which although not as bad the latest forecast as, as they might have been, are, is what the government is going to have to balance in the run-up to the next election, a, a wish to to maintain a, a reputation for prudence in a situation where that's extremely difficult to do given the costs of, of COVID. So, I mean, I think there will be, there are other bills uh, coming down the track. Uh, there will be decisions about other infrastructure projects. The, the Prime Minister has been very keen to, to go big on infrastructure, but maybe not everything that's been promised will be able to be delivered. And there will be obviously things like the, the government's plans for, for health sector reform. But generally, I think it's it's the pressures that are going to be put on, on decisions ahead of the election because of the, uh, the economic impact of COVID. Thanks for that. And Graham, thanks for being with us. For the first time in a few
0: weeks, we've managed to make it to the end of the podcast, almost until talking about standards in public life. But that subject has not gone away. Far from it. Next week, Angela Rayner, the deputy leader of the Labour Party, is going to be setting out how Labour would reform those standards and the systems that uphold them in a speech at the IFG. 11am on Monday. Don't miss it. Hannah, Keir Starmer has already set out Labour's view on second jobs. What areas can we expect Labour to touch on now?
3: I imagine... Angela Owen is going to take want to take a, a broader view on on all on ethical issues affecting public life. So, so moving beyond just MPs um, and their second jobs, thinking I think more broadly about about ministers and about some of the other sort of ethical uh, issues that have been raised in in recent weeks and months, Green and all those sorts of other issues to do with what jobs uh, ministers and civil servants can take after they leave office, as well as when they're uh, in office. I'm thinking that probably one of the themes, it might be uh, this, this issue which came up in the Committee on Standards and Public Life report issued recently about the sort of fragmented nature of the ethical regulation landscape, their thoughts really on how to strengthen the individual regulators, but also maybe to rationalise the landscape a bit to make it simpler and to ensure that there aren't gaps and overlaps which make it difficult for people to understand what the rules to which their subjects really are. So, I'm, I'm. That's what I'll be listening out for. And we're also expecting a, a report next Monday on from the Commons Committee on Standards. How does that fit into all this? So this is the report from Chris Bryant's committee, the yeah, the Committee on Standards, which is the sort of standing uh, House of Commons committee responsible for thinking about how how the House should regulate its own standards. And they have a long-running inquiry, which they, they do every parliamentary session, to, to look at the code of conduct for members and how that's working, how, how the whole system is working. Of course, that report has been given real additional bite by the events of recent weeks and the, the Owen Patterson situation, which really has undermined, I think, the current system. So we'll be looking there for, in particular, the proposals from the committee on how to give effect to the commitment which the House has now made uh, in, in a vote last week on second jobs. So the, the House voted for the government motion which said they wanted to do away with... Um, jobs which were to do with uh, sort of giving advice on Parliament and uh, sort of consultancy-type roles, and that they also wanted to put, impose reasonable limits um, on the second work, second, third, fourth jobs that MPs could do. And it would be really interesting to see how they go about uh, conceptualising how you could place such limits. Robert, the, the questions of how Parliament runs itself can be very dry and technical. What do you think voters make
1: of all this? I think we in the Westminster world often place more weight on this than I think some of them voters do because everything we've ever, I've ever seen suggests that voters assume all MPs um, are in it for themselves. They think they're all sleazy and that they just assume that whoever's in power will be more sleazy than the opposition because they have more opportunity. So in general, it's not seen as an overly party political issue. It's not one that's necessarily very likely to undermine the Conservative Party in that way. And if, if you think back to you know, the sleaze scandals of the major era, People place a lot of weight on that. But the truth is what did for John Major was Black Wednesday in the sense that the Conservatives were exhausted and couldn't run the economy properly anymore. And once people decided to dislike them, then these, these issues that came up gave them an added reason. And it's a sort of an added reason rather than the main reason for turning people off of off of government. So although some, there are issues which can break through and persuade voters that, you know, to use a phrase, that a line Labour's been using, there's one rule for them and one rule for everybody else. That all works a bit but it's not what's going to bring down this government. It's it's going to give people who are turning against this government added reason to do so.
0: Alex, I want to look ahead to another IFG event next week, which looks at the role of MPs and what we expect for them, much as Robert is describing. It feels as if this is changing very fast, does not
2: it? Yes, I think it's perhaps an acceleration of something that's been happening for, I don't know, the last 20, 20, 30 uh, years. If you think back to the 80s and 70s, MPs were very much sort of legislators first national politicians first and local politicians second but there it really is a very very strong expectation now on every MP even those with quite large uh, majorities safe safe seats that they are uh, highly present in their constituencies that they are get themselves involved in matters that might uh, normally be considered for the local authority the council or um, even sort of social work and uh, looking after constituencies so which makes it quite difficult if you're um, uh, if you're a minister and you're having to spend a lot of time in in offices in in Whitehall, I think the the, the other thing that has changed, and it's almost a diminution of the status of, of of MPs, is around electing party leaders. Party members have become more important. MPs as the gatekeepers, uh, and their their role in electing party leaders has uh, has changed and, and, and evolved um, over time. So yes, it's it's a it's a changing job and there is no job description for an an MP so you sort of make it up as you go along which means it's highly susceptible to cultural changes and uh political uh, changes and uh, and the incentives that are on that are on individual MPs.
0: And all this really matters for Parliament's ability to do the things it's supposed to do including hold the government to account and scrutinize legislation and represent people of the country and and so on. Um you hear a lot of MPs saying how worried they are about Parliament's lack of Muscle at the moment, Hannah. Um, just on one point of modernisation, Stella Creasy took
3: Parliament to task this week, didn't she? She did. I mean, she was. She, her attention was drawn to a rule change which had been made uh, without fanfare, which said that MPs couldn't bring, uh, which explicitly said that MPs couldn't bring uh, ba- babies, children into the chamber when they were participating in proceedings. And this is something which previous speaker, John Burko, had made clear. He was very comfortable with, with MPs, uh, taking their children through the voting lobbies, uh, if they needed to do that. And I, it was a bit of a surprise to her and, and, and others, I think, when, when this was said to her. It seems a real own goal, I would say, from the House of Commons to appear to be so unfriendly to MPs who are parents, uh, in their attempts to do their jobs. And it's particularly unfair given that Uh, Stella Creasy has been fighting a bit of a running battle with IPSA, the pay and expenses model, asking if she could have some additional funding to appoint a locum to cover her responsibilities while she took some maternity leave, which, of course, MPs are not entitled to, unlike most other employees in the country. And they've been very firm in saying that she can't appoint the sort of locum that she wanted, who would be able to cover these sorts of responsibilities for her. And yet neither can she uh, take her baby into the chamber to do that part of her job. So I think she's in a very invidious position. And I think the, I mean, the speaker has now said that there's going to be a review of this. And I think it's just really, as I say, an own goal to have not thought through the optics and the practicalities of this for MPs who are parents, men and women, and to to let this sort of negative uh, press again build up around around the House of Commons and and whether it's a modern and inclusive institution.
0: Robert, do you think, we're seeing a real change of um, of culture.
1: Well, I mean, I think we've been seeing a change of culture for quite a long time. And one of, the, if one goes back to the issue of MPs with second jobs, um, one of one of the fundamental changes came when the House of Commons reformed its hours so that it sat much, so that its working day was much closer to that of a normal person with an office job, whereas previously, you know, didn't start till 2.30. Uh, an MP could get, could have another job, rock up there at four, stay till midnight and still have done a full day's work um, as a politician. As we, as we regularise the hours and made them more family friendly, some of these other questions um, came into focus. And I think the issue that Stella Creasy is raising is a very interesting one, which is that either you've got to allow people to be parents and MPs, or you've got to allow Full, a, a, a full maternity cover of some kind so that people can, you know, take the time off to be with their, their child and know that their constituents are fully represented. I have to say, I do think given with the experiments with hybrid house that we had during COVID, it ought to have been possible to find a way to, a way through this. So it does seem one of those areas where the House of Commons could be just a little bit nimbler. But the whole nature of being an MP, as you say, is different. One another part I was just going to mention, problem which I do think Lies at the core of the issue of the standards debate is the extent to which MPs allow somebody else to judge them. And the core issue I think that came up in the standards revolt was whether they are, ha- this government is not, ha- this Prime in particular, is not happy to see an outsider given control of the checks and balances over politicians' behaviour. Whereas the direction that um, the House has been moved to, I think the public have moved to, is that you need an independent arbiter of the way MPs behave. And that seems to me the fundamental dividing line in this argument is whether they give up more control over judgment of their behavior.
0: Well, that's fascinating. And these points are going to run and run. I, I, I would, I would, I'm really tempted to go on here, but I think we're going to have to wrap it up there, knowing that we're going to have much more discussion on this in the weeks to come. So that's it for another episode of Inside Briefing. My huge thanks to Hannah White, Alex Thomas, Graham Atkins, and especially to Robert Shrimsley. Thank you all for listening at home. If you like this podcast, do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live, where you can listen to this week's events from us. We've got some fascinating conversations on how to design a tax system to pay for net zero and whether the UK's post-Brexit immigration policy is helping the economy. And remember, you can listen to all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, our website, wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to register to watch Angela Rayner's speech at the IFG on Monday. Check out instituteforgovernment.org.uk for more details. And we've made it to the end of another edition of Inside Briefing. I'm delighted to say that we stuck to the script, we didn't lose our place, and we have not compared ourselves to Moses. See you next week.